So this morning, we, um, we're returning back to our study. We've been going through the book of Thessalonians, a letter that Paul penned uh, to a church that he had planted um, in Macedonia. Uh, it is a fairly new church that he planted in the midst of what was a very hostile, uh, a very anti-God, paganistic culture in uh, Macedonia. Um, three things that kind of distinguished that culture in which Thessalonica existed. They were, they were paganistic, right? They were a city that had all kinds of false idols and false gods and idolatry. And it was really a hub for um, ungodliness in all of, of Macedonia. They were paganistic. They were prosperous as well because sometimes sin pays big, right? And that was like the place in which uh, people would buy a lot of the, um, idol, uh, the idols and all the paraphernalia that went along with much of the pagan practices and idolatry of the day. They were paganistic, they were prosperous, and they were also extremely promiscuous. Uh, this was a place where sexual idolatry um, and all forms of perversion were not only practiced, but they were celebrated, they were encouraged. In fact, if you didn't participate in much of those things, you were considered to be a problem and an outcast in society. And so this is the culture in which this new church finds itself um, in the midst of all of the, the idolatry and ungodly practices. And then they embrace Jesus who calls us to lives of holiness. And as they're kind of going against the flow of the culture, right? Not practicing the things that the culture was practicing. They found themselves uh, the target of much of the, uh, of, the, of much of the assaults of the authorities of that day. Because in the end of the day, the church just wasn't good for business. Right? It, really was, it was really affecting the pocketbook of the culture as the church was continuing to grow and pull away from much of the pagan, pagan practices of the day. And Paul is writing to this church and um, he, is in, he is there to uh, encourage them, to establish them, to exhort them in their growing faith because as they're engaging and growing in their faith, they're, they're coming against opposition, right? And, and Paul, uh, their, their spiritual father is concerned about them and not wanting them to get discouraged as they pursued Christ. And he's writing these letters to encourage them and challenge them. And in fact, we saw that eventually when they kick Paul out of the city and they drive him out of the city, we see that Paul sends Timothy, right? To ensure that, hey, go check up the on the church, see how they're doing, make sure that the obstacles that they're facing are not getting them off course, right? Encourage them and, encourage them and, and report back to me. Let, me, let them know how they're doing, right? And then, and then Timothy comes back with a, with a glowing report. And we looked at this last time we, we gathered together. He says, man, they're, they're holding to the faith, right? They're, they're not getting discouraged. They're, they're holding to the faith. They're loving one another, right? They're, they're, they're being the church the way they're designed to be the church. They're, they're, and also they're walking in holiness. They're not engaging in the sinful practices of their culture. They're running and turning from those things. And so they're continuing off and um, 
and continuing on their, their pursuit of Jesus. And that's where we left off uh, two weeks ago, and that's where I'm going to pick up with you this morning. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn together um, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8 today. I love, I love expository preaching. It's, it's, it's basically expository preaching is we allow the text, we go through the text verse by verse, and we allow the text to speak for itself, right? And so I don't, um, I don't just give my commentary on it. We allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And so we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and, and um, that's how we're handling 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so uh, this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 1. Let's take a look at this together. Verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit. I love, I love how Paul qualifies these, these loaded words here. It's like, hey, if you don't like it, take it up with God, right? He, he's not, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from God himself. I love the way Paul addresses this important subject in his opening remarks. He's, he's giving them instruction on how to walk in such a way that it pleases God. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I like that. In other words, he's not presenting his pet peeves. He's saying, I have the instructions we gave you, we gave them to you through the Lord Jesus. It's not my personal opinion. It's not my pet peeves. What I'm sharing with you comes from the Lord Jesus. And he says, what I'm laying out for you is how you can live or how you can walk a walk that's pleasing to God. Because in the end of the day, isn't that what we really want? I mean, that's what the Christian faith on this side of eternity really is all about, right? We ought to be walking in such a way that we are pleasing God. That's a great thing for us each to consider, even in the, in the quietness of our own hearts, is, is to examine our own lives, take, take moments of pause, and ask ourselves the hard question, is my walk pleasing to God? Is my walk pleasing to God? Well, what's our walk anyway? Our walk is how we go about our day. It's the decisions we make, the priorities that we set, the words that we say, the way we treat other people. In short, our walk is how the life of Christ is literally lived out in our lives. That's what the Christian walk is. It's walking as if Jesus was walking his life through us. Now, that's just not me getting fancy. That's, that's exactly what John says in his epistle. 
First John chapter two and verse five says this, by this, we know that we are in him. I love this. What John is saying is, here's how you know you're in the faith. Here's how you know you're a believer. Here's how you know that you are in Christ, right? By this, we know that we are in, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He who? He, Jesus. This is how we know we're in the faith that we walk just as Jesus walked. And so what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica is, there is a walk that's pleasing to God. And that walk looks like the same way that Jesus walked. Now that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? I mean, that preaches real well and that sounds real good in conversations. But man, that gets difficult sometimes, doesn't it? Unless you got it nailed, God bless you. But, but the reality of it is sometimes, hey, sometimes we do really well. And sometimes we let our guards down. Sometimes we, we embrace a lie from the past. Sometimes we let influences influence us greater than the Holy Spirit of God that is within us. But in the end of the day, we ought to walk our lives like Christ walked. And, and here's the good news, right? John, before even reminding us that here's how we know that we're in him, that we'll walk as Jesus walked, he'll say this in the beginning of the chapter. He'll say, my little children, I write these things that you might not sin. But if any of you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. My children, I write these things that you might not sin. That's the ideal. That's the plan. That's what God is calling for us to do. There is no leeway. I mean, that's, that's ultimately God's plan and purpose for our life. That's his will. I write these things that you might not sin. But if you do sin, it's not over. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not giving us license or, or permission. He's not giving us a, a plan B. But God, knowing our frame, knowing that as we are actively pursuing Christ, there's going to be moments where we act out in our flesh. We, we embrace lies from the past. We put those in motion. And it's in those moments where we recognize, you know what? I'm, it's not over. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How many are thankful for the advocate that we have? Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's not about our perfection. It's about our direction. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the, the, our faith, the plan and the purpose of God for your life and my life is that we would walk as Jesus walked. Now he opens up these, ver these first two verses and it sounds really good, but here's he, where we're about to go. Can I just tell you right now? It's going to get a little uncomfortable in here. Is that all right? But the good news is you're not going to get uncomfortable because I'm giving you my opinion. My opinion and my, my opinion in five bucks might get you stuck a cup of Starbucks coffee. Um, but as we're, as we're going over this passage of scripture and we are dealing with it line by line, the scripture has things to say about every area of life. And I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I sidestepped those uncomfortable moments. If I just raised the bar and the expectation. That's good. We're going to let it go today, man. Right? Let's check it out. As we go back to the opening of chapter four, we see the first two verses point out that the motive of the Christian, 
The motive of the Christian is what? It's to please God. The motive of the Christian is, is, is not to, to just experience the blessings of God and the goodness of God and all the, the wonderful things. And I thank God I'm a blessed man. There are benefits of being a believer that I have that I thank God for. I don't deserve them, but God allows me to experience them. But that's not what drives me. My, my drive to walk the walk of faith is to please God. And that's what Paul is laying out here in his opening verses. So he said in verse, in, in verse four of chapter two, when he said, hey, the things I'm bringing to you, it's not that I'm trying to please man, I'm here to please God. So the Christian life is about walking in a way that is pleasing to God. And Paul points out to them that this is exactly what they were doing. I mean, the report came back from Timothy. That, that, you know, he was concerned about them, but they came back and he's like, they're walking in faith. They're walking in humility. They're walking in love for one another. And he, say, and he says to him, I hear that you're, that you're doing well. And so he is simply affirming the importance of, of what they are already doing while at the same time, he's encouraging them to do it all the more. Look at, at verse one, he says, hey, we're talking about how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing and that you do it more and more and more. He's like a good dad who looks at his son and says, man, you're doing well, son, but keep on going. Don't get complacent. Keep pursuing, keep walking, keep following Jesus. Look at verse three. He says, for this is the will of God. Now that, that ought to right there ought to catch your attention. I mean, because he, he, Paul is about to give us a little information about what the will of God is for you and I. What is the will of God? I mean, how many times have we wondered, God, what is your will? Well, we don't have to look any further than right here, right? Look what he says here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Don't let the impact of that pass you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You see, the will of God for you, among other things, is that you be sanctified. Now, this is different from the, 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 the work of sanctification, which is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, believer where he, he is conforming us more and more on the inside into the image of Christ. But in this case, to be sanctified means to be set apart, to be different, to be unlike what you used to be prior to coming to faith in Christ. And again, remember, let's remember what they came out of. And he said, the will of God is for you not to be like you used to be. D.A. Carson says, to be sanctified means to belong to God and to show the same character as God. Wow. To be sanctified is to belong to God and to show the same character as God. This is a radical call for the believer. You see, you're not, you're not what you were. Aren't you glad for that? I'm not what I was. You, you've been changed. You've been redeemed. You've been, you've been made alive. A literal change has taken place on the inside and it needs to be evidenced by our actions on the outside. But you're not the same as you used to be. That's what Paul, what Peter will write in his epistle. He'll say, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, look, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Think about that. We were under the wrath of God. We were under the punishment of God, right? We were not a people, but now, and because of Christ, we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Peter's saying, this is what you are now. Say it, now. Now, Now. that's what you are now. This isn't what you can experience when you cross on over to the other side. This is who you are now. The devil doesn't want you to believe that. The devil wants you to think you're just a, 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 a little bit of a cleaner version of what you used to be. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. And so he says, this is what you are now. Then look what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. I love that he calls them sojourners and exiles. In other words, listen, you're living in a place that you do not belong. Right? We are on a journey heading on to the promised land. We don't belong here. We are not of this world. And he's saying, listen, here's what you are. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, God's own special people. And because of that, you are sojourners passing on through this life. And therefore, because of who you are, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Look what he says here. Which wage war against your soul, against your, against your mind. You see, the enemy wants to get into your mind and change, get you to change your understanding as to who you are in Christ. These, the, the, the war that is being waged is to try to redefine your understanding of yourself. He says, this is what you are. Therefore, abstain from the passions of the flesh because that's not consistent with who you are in Jesus Christ. And getting back to Paul, He'll say this, look, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is your sanctification, and here's where that's going to hit, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Interestingly, while it's not the only area that the sanctified life is seen, It is the specific one that Paul holds up as an example of the sanctified life, a life that is pleasing to God. A life that is pleasing to God is a life that abstains from sexual immorality. Why would Paul hold up this one example of the sanctified life and what it ought to look like? And listen, let me just say this. God is not anti-sex. God is not anti-sex. It's not that he doesn't want people to enjoy sex. The reality is that God created sex and he created it good and he designed it to be right and holy and it is to be enjoyed within the sacred covenant of marriage. 
between a man and a woman the way God designed it. And let me go a little further. Between a biological man and a biological woman, in case anybody is confused about that. Sex is something to be enjoyed and experienced in the way in which God, who created it, designed for it to be. It is Satan who perverts and distorts what God has designed and called good, by the way. The title of my message this morning is Sanctified Sexuality. So, wow, are you really going to talk about this in church? We are definitely going to talk about this in church. Where else are we going to talk about it? In our schools? We want our old golly schools defining this for our kids? We want, we want our politicians telling us? We're paid off by this multi-billion dollar pornographic industry? We want them setting the standards? No. God's got something to say about this subject that is the talking point and, and, and the preview of everything in our culture today. So why would Paul hold up this one example of, of what a sanctified life looks like by instructing them to abstain from sexual immorality. Well, certainly we need to remember the culture to which this church is coming out of, right? I mean, again, this is a culture where they, will inf- they were infiltrated by a lot of sexual idolatry. It was part of their religious worship. It was part of their enjoyment. It was like, it was like it's like what they did. And not only was it t- taking place, but it was celebrated. And they were considered outcasts if they weren't participating in the same mindset and the same practices. It's so unlike our culture today. <laughs> People don't change. Sin doesn't change. Manifestations of sin do not change. But you see, there's more to it. What does God have to say in the Bible about sexual immorality? The scriptures have a lot to say about sexual immorality. And I am literally going to just touch on the surface staying within the confines of our text this morning about why God is so opposed to sexual immorality. To be clear, what is sexual immorality, right? I guess sometimes we have to define the obvious, so let's, let's just define the obvious. Sexual immorality is any sexual engagement that takes place outside the sacred covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything apart from that is immoral, it is not walking according to God's design, and it is considered sexually immoral. We're going to look at six reasons from this text as to why God opposes sexual immorality. And again, I can spend a month and a half of Sundays just going through what the scripture has to say about sexual immorality. But again, I want to stay within the confines of our text. But I want to do this before I go there. Let me preface this by saying that there are two audiences to which Paul is writing the church in Thessalonica. There are those who, who had not been, who are, maybe they were young or they just had not been participating. There are those who had not been engaging in sexual immorality. And he is, he is highlighting the importance of, of remaining pure and, and, and living as God had called them to do, right? And, and I recognize and pray that that's exactly some of those people that are here this morning or listening online, right? As I consider some of our young people and, 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 and some of our older people who are, who are not married, you, you're looking, you're saying, you know what, I'm going to honor God with my body. And, and you're going to be very affirmed today to see that that's exactly what God wants you to do. 
But there was another part of the audience to whom Paul was writing to in the church of Thessalonica that came out of a lot of sexual immorality, right? They had a past, they had experiences, and he's raising the awareness not to shame them, not to rub their noses in it like a dog that just soiled the carpet. He's he's laying that out there to let them know that there's hope in Jesus, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, right? That he that the Son sets free is free indeed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become new. So maybe you're here like some of them and you've engaged in some things that you look back and say, I wish I didn't do it. Listen, the blood of Jesus covers that. And in addition to Jesus forgiving you, I want to encourage you, you need to forgive yourself. If you can't forgive yourself, then you're not understanding the impact and the capacity of the blood of Jesus. And so these two audiences are present in Thessalonica and I dare say probably listening to me today. So why is it important to God that his people abstain from all forms of sexual immorality? Isn't this comfortable this morning? I told my wife this morning, I said, I'll be talking about sexual immorality today. And she said, are you nervous? I said, actually, I'm really not. I said, if I was up here giving you my opinion, I'd be really nervous. Um, but I'm going to let the word of God speak. And that allows me to be real bold about what I'm sharing because I know it's right and it's true. And, and you don't deserve anything less than that. I pray that's why you're here. So why is God so opposed to sexual immorality. Number one, because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse three of chapter four. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, in honor. I love that. In holiness, in honor. God wants his people to exercise self-control, not giving over to the lust of the flesh, as Peter pointed out, but instead we are to control our own body in holiness and honor. The Greek word that's used here for body is a word that is not really used very often in the New Testament. The Greek word is skios, and, and it literally means container like a container. So the point here is that our body is a container and a container is what you put something into. So now let's just take that and put that container on the shelf for a moment. I'll pull it back out later. But what Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, same Paul, different church, but he's writing to the church in Corinth. And, and Corinth, unlike this church in Thessalonica, wasn't as new uh, to the faith. And they kind of knew the things that they should and shouldn't be doing. And, and he, is, he is writing to the church in Corinth, rebuking them, because in their midst, they are engaging actively and in a celebratory kind of a way, a lot of forms of sexual immorality. And so he writes this letter to them. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. If I were to sum up the whole service today, it would be just right there. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for, designed for 
sexual immorality, but it is meant for something. It is designed for something. Look, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What we see here is a beautiful picture. We've talked about this a little while back when we're going through Ephesians about our union with Christ. That the relationship that we have with Christ, that we are in in union with him. And he's saying here that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And that you're in union with Christ. Look what he says here. Look at verse 15. Do you not know? This is hypothetical because they did know. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's There's that union. That union. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I say, wow, that's pretty harsh. Now, let me me be clear here. When when he talks about the prostitute, it isn't just the person that you give some coin and you you, you go off into a dark place. It's really the prostitute he's referring to here is anybody who's not your wife. Someone who you should not be having sex with. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never is the answer. Or do you not know, look, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's incredible power of this union that we have in Christ that's in this body, this temple of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit having Paul write regarding sexual immorality among believers? That to engage in sexual morality would be like bringing Christ into that sinful union. What Paul says is, God forbid, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute Never. It's no wonder God has something to say about sexual immorality, especially amongst God's people. Some will say, come on, I mean, I get it, but sexual immorality, isn't, is, it, I mean, is it really any different than any other sin? Yes, it is different than every other sin. Look what Paul continues to say here. He says in verse 18, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. He says, therefore, so therefore, glorify God in your own bodies. You are the, have the, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, don't come into union with anybody who is not your wife because you're in union with Christ. And to go where you don't belong is to bring Christ with you. And you are not your own. Glorify God in your body. That's heavy, folks. That's heavy. Why is it so important to God 
that his people abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. Number one, as I said, because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, because sexual immorality is a sin against our own body. This is God's way of protecting us right here. This is how God protects us. Sexual morality, in addition to being a sin against God, is also a sin against your own body. Perhaps that's why so many people are living with such emotional and mental trauma, having lived a life of sexual promiscuity. I don't want to go too deep into the psychology of sex, but... I was reading on the Biblical Counseling Coalition and they write this. Neuroscience has shown that sexual activity releases hormones that result in a greater commitment and trust between sexual partners. Let's just stop there for a moment. Isn't God incredible? I mean, isn't God amazing what he does? That That in addition to just the enjoyment, right, that God has designed sex to be for us, He's equipped and designed us in such a way that we release hormones that bring us closer to one another. Though these hormones are biological, they work to deepen the heart's commitment to one's partner by God's design. In other words, the physical union of sex reinforces the relational union of marriage. This is why in verse 18, Paul says to flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a sin against our own bodies. And so when that hormone is released between two people having a fling or, or, or a one night stand, and that hormone is released and, and, there, and what's put in motion was, is what God has designed, but not with this person, do you really think? It's not going to have some kind of an impact on the mind of a person in a relationship. Our bodies were not designed for sexual immorality. You say, well, what what if that happened already? The blood of Jesus can cover that. The blood of Jesus can heal that. There's, I mean, the the reality, I don't want to, I don't want to create, listen, I don't want to create a hopeless situation. I want to create a hopeful situation. The reality of it is that all things become new as we come to Christ, right? And so if if I've, I've got to believe that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to restore that which my sin has put in motion. But I'll say this, if you haven't gone there, if you have, maybe you're young and you're beginning that, that dating relationship, or maybe you're older and you're already in the dating relationship, Don't cross that line. Don't go where God says not to go so that you can be protected and enjoy what God has designed the sexual experience to be between a husband and a wife. I thank God for the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, the healing that is found in Jesus Christ. But whether you're a preteen or a teenager, a young adult, or an adult who is not currently married, the will of God for you is your sanctification. Abstain completely, entirely, and wholeheartedly from sexual immorality. Not because God is looking to keep a good thing from you, but because because God wants to protect you 
from settling for far less than what God designed the marriage relationship to be. Remember in verse four, we saw that each one ought to know how to control his own body, his own container. Let's take the container off the shelf. What's inside the container? We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we don't go, we don't walk, we don't live in ways that are inconsistent with our new nature. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Don't let anybody talk you into doing things that you know God has not designed for you to walk through. Brother or sister, if that person can't wait, then they don't deserve you. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Why does God take sexual immorality so serious? Number three, because it's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. That's what he says there in verse four, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Right? And so what we see here, we see, read in Galatians that, that the fruit of the Spirit, right, the evidence of God working in our life, the evidence of the Spirit of God being within us is that we will manifest fruit that looks like love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. It's what comes out of the life of someone who knows God. And that's consistent with our new nature. That's why it goes, again, it always goes back to, this is who we are. This is how we live. This is how we walk. This is where the blessing is. This is where the goodness is. This is what is pleasing to God. The fruit of the Spirit is what comes out of the life of someone who knows God Why does God take sexual immorality so serious? Because it is the action of someone who doesn't know God. That's exactly what he says here in verse five. That you not do this, not in the passion of the lust, lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. That's what people who don't know God do. But you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own special people. You who know God, you don't do that which those who don't know God do and consider normal and acceptable practices. Ephesians chapter five and verse three, Paul writes, he says, but among you, there must not even be the hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not improper, meaning, well, God just doesn't like it. You're not wired for it. You're not designed for it. It's not how God has equipped you. That's why when people engage, when Christians engage in things that they shouldn't be engaging in, what do they feel? They feel a whole wave of of conviction and guilt and shame. Why? Because they're operating in something that is inconsistent with their new nature. 
Not even a hint. In other words, all forms of sexual immorality. In fact, the Greek word that Paul will use in Thessalonica for sexual immorality is the word pornea, which has to do with all forms of sexual immorality. And yes, that includes surfing the internet, thinking that what you're doing in privacy of your own home in the, in the dark cover of the night and nobody gets hurt from is okay. It is immoral. It's not consistent. It pollutes the mind of the believer. It's inconsistent. I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to release you from the lies of the enemy that says it's okay when it's not. It brings bondage when we're called to freedom. It brings darkness when we're called to light. And it brings second and third and fifth best when God calls you to the best. Don't settle. Those are traps that the enemy uses to keep you from walking in God's best for your life. Even if you're married, by the way. All forms of sexual interaction only engage, is engaged with your wife. I'll think, well, it's just, you know, I, I can, you know, my wife can't meet my needs and so I'm just going to surf over here. You don't belong there. There's no room for that. Don't think it won't impact you and impact your bride and impact your life and your family. Tears families apart all the time. Why does God take sexual immorality so serious? Number five, because it's a sin against the brother. It's a sin against the brothers. It says in verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Listen, this isn't just reserved for one night stands, right? That's not how we're going to qualify sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual engagement with somebody who is not your wife. And so listen, if you're dating someone, you're either dating your future wife or you're dating somebody else's future wife and you best not touch her. You keep your hands off until you engage in the sacred covenant of marriage. We need to hear it today, don't we? I mean, where else are we going to hear it than the house of God? Nothing will distort a relationship quicker than when you allow that snake of sin to come in. I know how crazy this sounds in our sex-crazed culture today. But this is what we're called to. A standard that is not like the world. He is our standard. Number six, how serious does God take sexual immorality? Number six, God will bring consequences. Verse six says, because the Lord is an avenger, right, don't sin against your brother, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. He's talking about all sexual morality, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Listen, people, many people think that they're getting away with things because, well, God isn't calling them on the carpet. 
And they can wrongly come to the conclusion that if they're not yet experiencing the consequences of the sins, then maybe finally God is caught up with the culture and he's okay with that. What you're experiencing is one of two things. If a person is, and I'm not talking about to you, I'm talking to whoever might be listening this morning. But if a person is engaging in sexual immorality and they are not feeling the conviction of God, one of two things have happened. Either they are not a believer, right? Because they're walking according to their own nature, or they have bought the lie so many times that their conscience is seared and they can't spot a sin unless it slapped them upside the head. God is not okay with it. If his word is true, and we know it is, there's always a consequence for disobedience. I heard someone say once that if God doesn't judge the sexual morality in our world today, he'll need to apologize for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't again, I can't emphasize enough. God wants the best for you. His plans and his purposes for you are good. The scripture lays out guidelines. You know, when you go, I'm teaching my son to Gabriel to drive right now, and that's a hoot. Um, and we talked about the importance of lines in the road. How many appreciate the lines in the world in the road, right? I mean, and I said to him, I said, Gabe, imagine we were driving on the expressway right now, right? And, and, and imagine there was no light. He's not ready for the expressway yet. But um, I said, imagine, sorry, buddy, you're getting there, though. Um, <laughs> but imagine there was no lines on the expressway, right? And everybody's kind of going wherever they're going. And, and there's no methodical way to go. People are just crossing over. And I said, could you imagine how crazy that would be? You see, the lines, God puts the lines in place. There would, be, there would be accidents all over the highway, right? God puts lines in his word for us, guidelines for us to live by. This is the way you ought to walk. This is the way you ought to live. You stay within those lines and you're safe. You're walking in the blessing and the goodness of God and you're not crossing over into areas that you don't belong. Stay within the lines. God, when God keeps something from you, it's to protect you, not to reject you. It's to protect you, not to reject you. You say, well, but, but it's fun. Absolutely. The, the, the scripture says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end, it reaps death. Don't think for a moment that what's fun today doesn't become bondage tomorrow. There's consequences. All right, so let me wrap up. I told you this would be fun today. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse seven. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. See how that just, it just sets you apart from the world that's gonna be under the judgment of God. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I recognize that what I'm sharing may appear outdated, archaic, out of touch, old-fashioned, and for some even downright hysterical. But I bring it to you boldly this morning with love concerned because it's what the word of God teaches. And if we want to live a life 
that's pleasing to God, then we need to allow the word of God to inform us. Hey, some, maybe some of this stuff you never heard before. Well, now you know. Let's honor God with our bodies and bring glory and honor to Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And let that be seen in your sanctified sexuality. Can we, can we push back against the narrative of today? Can we push back against the lies of today? Can we as the church of Jesus Christ, can we push back against the dysfunction and the perversion? It's going to get worse and worse. We better hold tightly to the word of God and know why we live the way we do because it's a life that's pleasing to God. And therein is the blessing that God has for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, indeed, it is a lamp unto our feet. And surely it lights up the path and it exposes the traps of sin. Father, I pray that this word um, would not cause shame in our hearts, but where necessary repentance, turning from those things. I pray that it would grant affirmation for those who are, who are committed to sexual purity, that it would serve as a reminder that regardless of what culture says, regardless of what our schools say, regardless of what our, our politicians say, your word does not change. And Lord, as your people, we, we desire to walk in accordance with your word so that you might be pleased that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray.